God from all eternity did, by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will, freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass, yet so as thereby neither is God the author of sin, nor is violence offered to the will of the creatures, nor is the liberty or contingency of second causes taken away, but rather established. Now that's a bit of a mouthful. But what I just read to you is perhaps the most famous and notorious quotation from the entire Westminster Confession of Faith. The Westminster Confession of Faith is one of the great historic confessions that many Presbyterians use to define what they believe. And our church follows the Westminster Confession of Faith in a very rough way. So we have a great and high respect for this confession. And this confession just claimed that God from all eternity did by the most wise and holy counsel of his own will freely and unchangeably ordain whatsoever comes to pass. And in that quotation is contained the heart of what is so often offensive to people about Reformed theology or what has become kind of nicknamed in the culture Calvinism. Why is it so offensive? Because in this quotation is a very bold claim. And it might be easy to miss because it uses a little outdated phrase, phrases that we don't really speak in anymore. But what we just read is that God predestines everything that happens. Whatsoever comes to pass. That means if it comes to pass, if it happened to you, God predestined it. Whatsoever comes to pass, comes to pass because God worked it out according to the wise counsel of his will. So if something happens, you know God planned this. God planned it. In other words, God is the cause of all things that take place. Now, where on earth did the authors of this confession get such a notion? Like, why would they believe this? One of the most important proof texts that the confession offers for this point comes from our text today as we work through the book of Ephesians. If you would please open your Bibles to Ephesians chapter 1, verses 11 through 12. Please open to Ephesians 1, 11 through 12. You're going to see as you turn there that in these two verses, Paul is going to reiterate a lot of what we have already said. But he's going to also improve or add some really important new information. And what you're especially going to find is that most of the new stuff Paul says in these verses is highly controversial. So I hope you didn't think we were done with the controversial preaching after we preached on predestination election. It's only going to get worse today. So I'm sorry if you were hoping for no more controversy. Uh, you're going to have to buckle in. We have some things to work through today. Ephesians chapter 1, 11 through 12. Would you please stand for the reading of God's word? In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will, so that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. Amen. This bars the reading of God's word. Please be seated. There are sort of three levels to these two verses, if you will. Paul tells us what believers receive, how we receive it, and why we receive it. That's essentially what Paul communicates in these two verses. What believers receive, how they received it, and why they received it. And so let's begin with the what. What is it that Paul tells us believers receive in Christ? The beginning of verse 11, 
In him, that goes back to Christ, in Christ we have obtained an inheritance. So in Christ you have obtained an inheritance. Now that's how the ESV reads it. And most of the English translations read along those lines. They will speak of some kind of inheritance that you've received. Or your, the Bible, your translation might even say something that you are an heir. That you have become an heir of something, right? There's this idea that you're receiving something. You are inheriting something. Some Bibles will go with the much more literal translation and just say something like chosen. But I think the ESV and all the other Bibles got it right, speaking of an inheritance or an heir. And here's why. The Greek word, there's only one word underneath this phrase, and it's not used, so this is the only time it's used in the New Testament, which makes it somewhat difficult to figure out what it means. But thankfully, in the Greek rendering of the Old Testament, it's used often. And the way it's used in the Old Testament almost all the time is specifically when talking about casting a lot, the divine lot, when you cast lots and God makes a decision. But not just the casting of a lot, specifically it's the casting of God's allotted a portion of the land of Canaan to Israel. The way this word is used in the Old Testament is to describe how God gave, he allowed Israel to inherit the promised land. So caught up in this word in the Greek is this understanding of God predestining us to inherit a promised land. We have become heirs and there is a land out there that we're supposed to inherit. And so that is why most of these translations will say that we in him, we have obtained an inheritance. And so other, in other words, what Paul is doing to this Gentile audience is very amazing. He is uniting them with Israel in a spiritual sense. In the same way that physical Israel was given an inheritance of land by God, in the New Testament we see that that's a type and shadow, that's a foreshadow of spiritual New Testament realities, meaning the Christian church, which is the new Israel, the fulfillment of Israel, still has a promised land to inherit. We are still waiting to step into a promised land. So we could summarize what is it that we obtain heaven. We obtain the resurrection, the promised land. Heaven is the promised land that has been promised to the Christian church. God has allotted this land to us and we are awaiting to obtain this inheritance. We have obtained an inheritance. Christians have obtained heaven. Up to this point, all of the spiritual blessings that Paul has covered have been entirely subjective. And what I mean by that is they've been very personal to you as an individual. Right? Things like election and sanctification, holiness, justification. Those are things that you as an individual experience. But here is more of a corporate focus as the entire Christian church is being prepared to cross the Jordan and step into the promised land. We are inheriting something objective, something external. We are inheriting, as Matthew 5 says, the world. This is one of our spiritual blessings in Christ. We have an inheritance of heaven. And the reason this word is important, inheritance or heir, is especially important in the New Testament, is because what was happening here is that in him and the inheritance are very, very important. You don't get this inheritance outside of Christ. No Christ, no inheritance. And the reason that matters is because what we see throughout the rest of the New Testament is here's what's happening. Christ is actually the heir of all things. God has not actually given heaven to us. He's given heaven to Christ. 
He has given all things to Christ. He has given the land to Christ. He's given the world to Christ. And Christ is the Son of God, and the Son is the heir of the Father, right? That's how the Old Testament works. The firstborn Son becomes the heir of the Father. And when the Father dies, who gets everything? The firstborn Son. So Jesus, being God's only begotten Son, His firstborn Son, is the inheritor of all that the Father has. Jesus is the inheritor of the land. And what the New Testament says is that when we believe in Christ and we are united to Christ by faith, we receive what Christ has. In other words, we become co-heirs with Christ. So God has promised Jesus this glorious resurrection heaven. And if we are united to Christ, then we therefore become co-heirs with him. And it's now been promised to us. This is affirmed, by the way, in Romans chapter 8, when Paul says this, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs or co-heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. You see, Christ is God's heir, and we, in union with Christ, become the heir. So as believers, we are heirs who are waiting for our inheritance. In Christ, we have been predestined to receive the blessings that he has earned. This is amazing. And this leads nextly to our next point then. How? This is such a glorious thing, right? Everything Christ earned is being given to us. Christ earned the promised land and we're going to inherit it. We're going to get it. We're going to enjoy that. How did that happen? How did such an amazing blessing fall upon me? How did I become a co-heir with Christ? Well, the text tells us, look at verse 11. In him we have obtained an inheritance. How? Having been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. It is by God's predestination that you have become co-heirs with Christ. Paul already taught us this in verses 3 through 4, but he does add something a little different and a little spicier in these verses. Paul here tells us that God electing us to receive heaven in Christ is according to the same will of God which predestines all other things. In other words, Paul's arguing from the greater to the lesser here. He's essentially saying this, because God is the one who's in control of all things, because he predestines whatsoever comes to pass, of course your salvation is predestined because it's part of the all things, right? How can God predestine everything but not predestine your salvation? If everything happens according to the counsel of his will, then whatever happens to you happens according to the counsel of his will. You became an inheritor of all that is in Christ because God predestined you to that. And how do you know God did that? Because he's predestined everything to its outcome. The salvation of the Christian church is only a part of the whole plan that God has predestined for all of creation. In other words, Paul makes very clear, God has not split human history into two parts. And he said, okay, there's, there's part of human history is the church, and I'll be in control of that. I'll make sure that goes the way I want it to go. But the rest of human history doesn't involve the church, and they're left on their own to their own devices. I don't know what's going to happen with the rest of the world. We'll let them figure it out. But I'm going to predestine the church. Paul is denying that kind of bifurcation, splitting that into two parts. He's saying, no, God is in control of all things. He's predestined all things. So what conclusion can you come to? Your inheritance has been predestined. 
We have been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. So Paul establishes what we receive, heaven, and he establishes how we receive it. The wise predestinarian counsel of God. And so that leads to the third thing. Why? Right? We see what? We see how. Why? Why me? Why us? Why not a different way? Why this difficult plan? Well, he tells us in verse 12. So that we who were the first to hope in Christ might be to the praise of his glory. All things happen and specifically the salvation of the church happens to bring God glory. God is in control of all things to assure that all things will ultimately work out toward the most important thing in all of the universe. And that is bringing glory to God. You remember, we talk a lot about the Reformation here at this church. The most important of all the soli, solas, the last sola, the reason for all the other solas is what? Soli Deo Gloria. To the glory of God alone. The whole purpose in life, the whole purpose of the church, the whole purpose to everything is to bring glory to God. As a matter of fact, the Westminster actually says that too. Not in the confessions, but every historic confession also has a catechism. And the purpose of a catechism is to teach you the theology of the confession. So the confession lays out the theology. And then you have a catechism which is structured in question and answer, which helps teach that. And that's how all of them work. The Lutheran confessions, the Reformed confessions, that's how they work. So this is not part of the Westminster Confession, but this is part of the Westminster Larger Catechism. And guess what is the first question in the whole catechism? Where do they begin? They begin with this. What is the chief and highest end of man? Why are you here? What's the purpose of life? Why are you here? Ephesians 1.12 gives us that answer. And that's why the confession gives this answer. Man's chief and highest end is to glorify God and fully to enjoy Him forever. What an answer. What a beautiful answer. This is the purpose that every human being needs to strive for. How can I enjoy and, and, and glorify God? Because the, most, the glory of God is the most important thing for any creature to pursue. God is working out all things towards that ultimate end of receiving due glory. All of human history is not about us. God didn't set everything up for us. Certainly he loves us and we play a very important role in all this. I'm not saying he disregards us or doesn't care about us. But God did not create and do everything for us. It's for his own glory because we are not the center of the universe. God is the center of the universe. And so thus in these two little verses, we have so much packed in here. We have what we receive, how we receive it, and why we have received it. God predestined those who believe in Christ to receive the inheritance of heaven for his glory. But that leaves out this important detail of verse 11. The elephant in the room. Wherein God predestines not just the inheritance of believers, but as we've been saying, all things. How might we condense all of this to a helpful point, by the way? Before we get into the real controversial stuff, maybe it would be helpful to condense this. So when you leave here, someone asks you, hey, what would you learn in church today? You're like, you can spout it off. You can say, this is what I learned in church today. What I would love to do is to quote from the confession again. This is, this is how the Westminster Confession summarizes verse 11. Verse 11. 
God works all things according to the counsel of his own immutable and most righteous will for his own glory and hath most sovereign dominion over all things to do by them, for them, or upon them whatsoever himself pleaseth. That's a good thesis. But I'm willing to bet you probably won't remember that when you leave the room. I'll tell you what, I won't remember that when I leave the room. So as glorious as that is, maybe we can condense that even further. And here's what I think is the purpose of these two verses. Here's kind of the thesis of the sermon. Our sovereign God causes all things to bring him glory. Our sovereign God causes all things to bring him glory. That is what we mean, by the way, when we call God sovereign. Every Christian uses that word, but we don't always mean the same thing. In this church, when we call God sovereign, we are not saying that he merely has supreme authority, although he does have that. When we call him sovereign, we mean he has total control over everything. Everything that takes place is ultimately under the providence of God. His providence is not a partial providence, but a total providence, a complete providence. He controls and guides everything according to his plan for history. God is sovereign, and because he is sovereign, there is nothing outside of his plan and outside of his control. God makes all things happen as they do to fit in his larger plan for human history, which will, in the end, bring him most glory. But as I said, there's a little bit of an elephant in the room here. This might sound good. Any preacher can make this sound good until we start talking details here. Right? God can predestine everything. Yeah, that sounds really good, but what happens when we start talking about all the things in human history that have happened that are not so good? God predestined that. Every heartbreak, every act of violence. Is the Westminster Convention of Faith saying God predestined these things? And the answer is yes. He works all things according to the counsel of His will. Now, I was tempted to not try to bring up any objections to this controversial subject in the sermon. And the reason I was tempted to do that is because we don't have time in a hopefully 36-minute sermon to cover this in full exhaustive detail. And I don't like to open up cans that I cannot close. So I was tempted just to leave the sermon here. You would have had a nice little 18-minute long sermon. But because this is so sensitive... And because I know that for so many of us, there's, there's not just questions in our head, but questions that are potentially damaging us spiritually. This, this, is, this is difficult theology to have someone tell you. I think it's important for us to at least begin to address why maybe this doctrine is not quite so offensive and terrible as it might sound. So let me remind you, I am not going to give a full and exhaustive answer to all the questions you might have when we start talking about God being sovereign over everything that happens. You have lots of questions that need a lot of time, and there's even some mystery I may not even be able to answer. Well, we don't have time for today. But let's just give a, a, a semblance of an answer just so you know that we're not saying these things flippantly. We've thought through these things. So what is usually the first response that a Christian might have to another Christian who says, I think God predestines not just some things, but all things. That all things happen according to the wise counsel of God's most holy will. Well, the classic answer is that that makes God the author of evil. Right? And God is not the author of evil. If God predestines evil, if he causes evil, then that's the same thing as doing evil. So if God predestines all things, then he himself is evil. 
God cannot be the author of evil, so he cannot predestine evil. And so here's how I want us to begin this objection. There's a lot of philosophical debates that Christians have gotten into that are really, really deep that we're just not even going to try to get into today. And I don't even think that's actually my job today. My job is to tell you what the text of the Bible says. So I am not going to attempt to teach you how it's possible for God to predestine evil and still not be accountable for it. There are Christians who can do that. I have resources in my library. I will give them to you. If you, if, if you want to take that plunge, you can take it. I'm not hiding from it. But I think my job is more important not to show you how, but just to show you that it does. Just to teach you that the Bible does not make this assumption. We make an assumption that if God predestines an evil thing, he's responsible for it. God, the Bible doesn't make that assumption. We make that assumption. The Bible doesn't. And so I just want to show you how the Bible does not make this assumption. So many Christians assume the Bible makes it, and then they go and develop whole theologies about God, where they're essentially, as the old expression goes, trying to give God a compliment he didn't ask for. We try so hard to make sure God looks holy and he looks separated from sin and that's good, that we, when we develop a theology with that in mind, rather than just what does the Bible say, but when we develop a theology based on the assumption, God can't be in control of evil because then he's responsible for it, so let's create a theology where he's not in control of evil. You end up saying things that the Bible just simply doesn't say, and you get embarrassed by Christians who say things that the Bible does say. So my job today, I think, is just to show you how the Bible is very, very, very comfortable attaching God's plans and purposes to evil without the assumption that he's responsible for it. In other words, I love, there's a, a Calvinistic philosopher who gets really deep into this stuff, but he has this awesome quote from his book uh, where, uh, forgive me, he says this, the God of the Bible does not shy away from his providence over evil as much as philosophers tend to do on his behalf. The God of the Bible does not shy away from his providence over evil as much as philosophers tend to do on his behalf. And in my experience, that is very, very true. So what are some of the passages he has in mind? Well, let me just briefly go through a small handful of them. And I, this list could get longer. And by the way, actually, I don't know who we gave the clicker to, um, but these verses I actually will have on the screen for us, so if you can go through them one, one by one. Genesis 50-20, Joseph tells this to his brothers after they uh, repent and apologize for trying to kill him and then selling him into slavery and then lying to their dad. All pretty bad stuff, pretty evil stuff. And Joseph says this to his brothers, As for you, you meant evil against me, but God meant it for good. To bring it about that many people should be kept alive as they are today. Genesis 50, 20. God did not turn it into good. He did not find a way later on to make it. He meant it for good. God meant for that to happen. He didn't let it happen and then fix it later. He intended for that evil to happen. Let's continue. Consider this. Isaiah 45, 7. I am the Lord. I form light and create darkness. I make well-being and create calamity. I am the Lord who does all these things. When calamity happens, when disaster happens, God did it. He created it. We've gone through a lot of calamity in our country the last two years. Guess who did that? God did it. He didn't just allow it. He wasn't surprised by it. He did it. Consider this, Deuteronomy 32, 39. 
See now that I, even I, am he, and there is no God beside me. I kill and I make alive. I wound and I heal, and there is none that can deliver out of my hand. When people die, God did it. God did it. He kills. He wounds. He's not just the healer. He's the killer. He's the wounder. And the Bible's unembarrassed by that. We don't like that. The Bible's not embarrassed. Let's continue. Amos 3.6 Is a trumpet blown in a city and the people are not afraid? Does disaster come to a city unless the Lord has done it? Russia invaded Ukraine. It was all the talk for a while and then it kind of stopped. Who did that? There's lots of true answers to that question, believe it or not. But one of the true answers is God did that. Because disaster doesn't come to a city unless the Lord has done it. God did that. Another one. Lamentations 3, 37-38. Who has spoken and it came to pass unless the Lord has commanded it? Is it not from the mouth of the Most High that good and bad come? Now, I know I'm not giving a full in-depth explanation of these verses, but remember what's the point. I want you to see the Bible is much quicker to associate God's control over bad things than we typically are. I just want us to see that. You can skip to the next slide which says, Sermon, I have a few more that are not up here because they all come from the book of Job. If you want a, a good, holistic theology of God's sovereignty over suffering and evil, you need to read the book of Job. This is all throughout the book of Job. Let me just read you three verses from the beginning and the end that put together from the book of Job. But Job said to his wife, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not also receive from him evil? And, and then guess what the very next part of the verse is? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. Then Job answered the Lord and said, I know that you can do all things and that no purpose of yours can be thwarted. And Job's friends showed him sympathy and comforted him for all the evil that the Lord had brought upon him. Does the book of Job try to say, well, no, technically that was Satan. God didn't do that. That was technically Satan. Yeah, it technically was Satan, but it was also God. According to the own book, it was also God. But there's actually an even greater example. We flew through a bunch of examples, but there's, there's an example from our Bibles way better than anything you've read from Genesis or Lamentations or Job, and it's the very crucifixion of Jesus Christ himself. Turn in your Bibles, keep your mark here, turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2, please. Acts chapter 2. Verses 22 through 23. This is Peter's sermon after Pentecost. A part of his sermon after Pentecost. And notice what he says in verse 22 and 23. Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know, this Jesus, delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless 
men. This is amazing. Specifically verse 23. Notice what verse 23 does. Do you see how clearly Peter affirms that what happened to Christ was part of God's predestined plan? God planned the crucifixion. And that's easy to embrace from the, from, from the outset. If I were to go up to almost any Christian on the streets of Roswell and say, hey, did God plan the cross? Oh yeah, of course he did. That wasn't an accident. God planned that. Well, that's interesting because a lot of evil happened in that moment. As a matter of fact, the greatest evil the world has ever seen happened in that moment. The worst thing that has ever happened happened in that moment. And you're telling me God planned it. Why is God allowed to predestine the worst thing that's ever happened? But then I won't give him per permission to predestine lesser bad things like things that happened to me. You can predestine the murder of the Son of God, but don't you dare predestine that I get into a car wreck. That's not fair to me. You can predestine Jesus' death, but don't you dare predestine my death. That belongs in my hands. God predestined the worst sin that has ever happened. And it was a multiplicity of sins. It was Pilate's sin to give Jesus over. It was the Jews' sin to take him. It was every single strike of the hammer from every single Roman. That was all part of a plan. <laughs> he planned it. But notice how after Peter so effortlessly says, yeah, God foreknew and planned and predestined this, what does he immediately turn around and say? You crucified and killed by what? The hands of robots and puppets merely doing what God forces them to do? Lawless men. So again, I'm not here to explain the how, just the what. And here's the what. The Apostle Peter has no problem saying the crucifixion, God planned it and predestined it. And the men who did it are evil and they're going to be judged for it. That's what the Bible says. Now, if you want to dive into the philosophy and figure that out, I, I invite you to do that. Be my guest. But that's what the Bible says. God predestines evil, but the people who do it are responsible for it. That's what it says. And we need to be able to affirm what it says, even if we haven't fully understand how that's the case. Does that make sense? That's what we do in faith. So I would just simply, to wrap up this point, I reject this assumption that if God predestines evil, he's automatically evil himself. He's guilty of evil. I don't think the Bible makes that assumption. So is it true that God is the author of evil? No. But yes, he does predestine all things. Next question then, here's the other objection. They're related, but they're similar. But they're, I'm forgetting, but they are different. So what about free will then? Right? If God predestines all things, that means he predestines my choices. And if he predestines my choices, then they're not my choices. So there's no such thing as free will. We're just puppets on a string. We're just robots. Again, same thing goes. There is a, you would not believe the amount of literature that actually exists in the philosophical realm from both Christians and even non-Christians on the notion of free will. Free will is one of those things that so many people think is just simple. Oh yeah, I've got free will. I can make any choice I want. I dare you to buy a philosophy book from any perspective, Christian, atheist, and buy a philosophy book on free will and see if it's such a simple concept. Again, it's an assumption we make, but it's highly technical, it's highly nuanced, and it's highly difficult to understand. And there are philosophers, both Christians and non-Christians, who reject free will. As a matter of fact, I was recently listening to a lecture that made the bold claim that the vast majority of philosophers in every religion reject free will. Free will is popular among lay people, it's not popular among philosophers. 
Now, I'm not saying philosophers are our standard. The reason I bring that up is to show you, you might have this image in your head that free will is this really simple thing that we all have. And I'm challenging you, it's not so simple. Would you even be able to define it if someone randomly came up to you on the street and said, what is free will? Well, I have the ability to choose between two things. How do you know that? How do you know you have that ability? If someone was making you make the choice, you wouldn't know. How do you, how do you know that? It's not so simple. So I would encourage you to not cling so tightly and so desperately to a word that's not even in the Bible. The Bible doesn't even use this language. And we're desperate to cling. No, no, man has free will. Man has free will. Now, again, I do affirm that mankind is responsible for their choices. But believe it or not, that's not actually the same thing as free will as most people understand it. So I just want to remind you that this is not so simple as people think it is. But rather than talk philosophy, again, let's just talk Bible. Because guess what? This exact question, why would God judge me for merely doing what he predestined, is actually asked word for word to an apostle in our Bibles. How great is that? This question comes up in Scripture. Turn, if you will, to Romans chapter 9. Romans chapter 9, this question is asked, so we have a biblical answer to this question. Romans chapter 9, we're going to read verses 19 through 24. You will say to me then, speaking of God, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? But who are you, O man, to answer back to God? Will what is molded say to its molder, why have you made me like this? Has the potter no right over the clay to make out of the same lump one vessel for honorable use and another for dishonorable use? What if God, desiring to show his wrath and to make known his power, has endured with much patience vessels of wrath prepared for destruction in order to make known the riches of his glory for vessels of mercy, which he has prepared beforehand for glory? Even us whom he has called, not from the Jews only, but also from the Gentiles. This is pretty powerful. What's the question in verse 19? Why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? What's being asked there? The who can resist his will is rhetorical. We all know that no one can resist God's will. If God wills me to do something, I can't resist it. So if God wills me to do something, why does he still find fault with me for doing it? And by the way, this came right after a discussion of Pharaoh, of God hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he would not let the people go. And yet Pharaoh was going to be judged for that on judgment day. So why would Pharaoh be judged for merely doing the will of God? Because who can resist God's will? That's the question. Why does he still find fault for who can resist God's will? It's free will. If Pharaoh didn't have the free will to not do it, why judge him for it? This is our question. This is the what about free will question. And how does Paul answer it? Who are you, O oh man, who answers back to God? <laughs> he doesn't explain the philosophy. He doesn't explain the metaphysics. He jumps right to authority. He says, I'm sorry, but that question is above your pay grade. O oh man, O oh creature. And then he goes on again to the authority. Does not God have the right... To make of the same lump vessels, pots for different purposes, for different uses. And does the pot have the right to say, oh, oh, pot maker, you shouldn't have made me this, you should have made me this. 
Paul jumps to authority, not philosophy, not metaphysics, not even logic, to authority. Who, who, who are we to pretend like we're allowed to question God like that? You, we may not like this answer. I'm not asking you to like the answer. My job today is not to get you to like things. It's to present it. Paul is asked about free will. Why does he still find fault? For who can resist his will? And what's his answer? Who are you to ask that question? Does God not have the right to make out of the same lump vessels for wrath prepared for destruction and vessels of glory? That's Paul's answer. But unfortunately, it's not good enough for us. You know how the modern American apologist wants that question to be answered? When the objector says, why does he still find fault for who can resist his will? Paul should have said, oh, that's a great question. You're right. So I guess God didn't will it. I guess I was wrong. He didn't will Pharaoh's disobedience after all. Because you're right. God would never judge somebody for his will. Because who can resist his will? I'm sorry. I repent. God did not will what happened to Pharaoh. It was a total coincidence. God got lucky. Maybe Pharaoh could have let the people go. And then Pharaoh gets all the praise and God doesn't get the praise. God just got lucky with Pharaoh. We're lucky that Pharaoh was just so evil that he did exactly what God wanted him to do. No, Paul is actually affirming, I know this is hard, but it's not my business. God has the right to do it. Whether you understand the metaphysics or not, God has the right to do it. That's Paul's answer. And so let's move on to the third and the more understandable objection. This is the one I think we're all feeling, probably even more so now than before I opened up my mouth. That this is just hard. <laughs> like, isn't this just emotionally hard? It's hard to accept. It's hard to believe. It just doesn't seem fair. And I think that's a fine question. It's okay to feel that way. I would actually tell you that if you read through your Bible and you're never bothered, you're never challenged, then might I submit to you that perhaps you're not actually reading the Bible. You're just reading in what you want to hear. It's good when the Bible bothers me because that means I'm letting it speak for itself. This is a hard teaching. But I want to remind you of something. In case you're just really bothered by what I have to say, I know that I've really killed the mood of the room here. But I want to remind you of something important before we wrap this up. It's easy to hear everything I've said and said, I'm, just, I'm really emotionally bothered by that. Intellectually, I, I can't agree with that. So I'm, I'm going to go elsewhere. I'm not going to accept that system. I say that's fine. But I'm going to encourage you, the answers to these questions don't get any easier when you leave Calvinism. <laughs> they don't get that much easier. God predestines all things? Nah, I don't like the sounds of that. Okay, so what's your position when a drunk driver hits a f another car and kills a small family? God didn't predestine that. Okay, fine, let's grant that. Could God, did God have the power to make that car not start? Did God have the power to just not let the alcohol affect the driver that badly? Did God have the power to just give the driver a heart attack before he started driving? You see, there are lots of things that God could have done in almost any situation of evil that he chooses not to do. Does God control the wind and the waves? It's easy to say yes to that. What about when tsunamis hit the east coast and kill thousands of children? Does God control the wind and the waves then? You've got to answer for that. And merely saying God didn't predestine that doesn't answer why he let it happen when he could have very easily have stopped it. It would have taken no effort for God to say, I don't want that tornado to kill that family. I don't want that hurricane to kill that family. That's nothing for God. 
So you can, okay, I don't believe God predestines evil. Okay, fine. I think you're wrong about that, but that's fine. But you still need to be able to give an account for why he looks upon it and does nothing. How is that better? Why are you comfortable with God could stop this but doesn't versus he predestined it? Is that really a superior place? Does that make you feel that much emotionally better? I'm just going to, in other words, I'm going to put it this way. God's relationship to evil and suffering is going to be difficult to understand and believe no matter what tradition you line in. And so I say that to say I would highly encourage you to not let your emotions dictate what you believe on this issue. I just don't like what the Calvinists have to say. I don't like what the Westminster says, so I'm not going to be a Calvinist. If you're led by your emotions, you're going to lead yourself right out of Christianity. And lots of people have. The problem of evil and suffering is one of the main reasons that causes people to abandon the faith. Because at the, they see that at the end of the day, God is in some way, shape, or form responsible. He could make your cancer go away. He has the power to do that. And a lot of times he doesn't. Whether he predestined that or not, you've got to give an account for it. This is a difficult emotional issue. So please don't give up on Reformed theology because it's hard emotionally. We need to examine what the text of the Bible says. But let me end with this, though. I don't want to end on such a sour note. Let me try to turn it around and give you two reasons why you should actually be comforted by this. Let's not end with sickness and death and what do we do. Let's end with why is it that this is good news? Because I remind you, Paul did not say verse 11 in a sour mood. He wasn't like, oh my goodness, guys. I don't, the Lord Jesus just revealed to me that God works all things according to the counsel of his will. I, I, need, I need to figure this out. He's celebrating here. This is triumph. Remember the, the context back in verse 3. This is one of our reasons to bless God. Why should we bless God? Because in Christ, he has predestined us to an inheritance and we've been predestined according to the purpose of him who works all things according to the counsel of his will. This is celebratory. This is not a funeral. So why should the sovereignty of God be something that can actually be an encouragement to you? I've got two important reasons. Number one, the sovereignty of God gives us humility. The sovereignty of God, in salvation specifically, gives us great humility. There is no room for boasting whatsoever when you believe your salvation is completely accomplished by God and God alone. God did not merely put a plate in the middle of the womb of the world and say, whoever wants to eat can come eat. Then you have something to boast about because now you have a reason for why you came to the feast and others didn't. Are you smarter? You're smarter than them? Just Non-Christians are just dumb, right? They're just not smart enough to believe the evidence. I, I studied the evidence and I know it's true. I'm just so smart. That's why I'm a Christian and they're not. No. <laughs> Hate to break it to you. It's not because of that. You just have better spiritual discernment. You're just a better person. No? What reason do we have for why my really nice, really smart neighbor doesn't love the Lord and I do? What reason do we have that gives me no reason to boast before the Lord? The sovereignty of God. When I believe that God is truly in control of my salvation, then I could never, ever, ever look down upon someone else as being lesser than me because they're not a Christian. Because I am merely the recipient of grace. That's the only difference between me and him. There is nothing that humbles you quite like the sovereignty of God. 
But probably more to the emotional point is this. The sovereignty of God actually gives us hope in the midst of evil and suffering and trials. It gives us hope. When you believe that God predestined all things, then you actually have a foundation to believe your suffering has meaning. It has purpose. It's not random. It's not accidental. It's not just some unfortunate hiccup in history and God is going to maybe, maybe figure out a way to make it work for you. All of your trials, all of your tribulations are meaningful. They have purpose. It truly makes sense of that famous Bible verse we love to put on coffee mugs and t-shirts that we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Everything that happens to you is for your good. There's meaning and purpose to all that happens, the good and the bad. Just like Job said. You never go through suffering that God did not intend for you to go through. And so that means that God has meaning and purpose to your suffering. Apart from the sovereignty of God, at least as I've presented to, to you today, then at best, you can fall into any evil, even the evil God doesn't want you to fall into. Isn't that terrifying? Isn't it terrifying to believe that God is up in heaven saying, I really don't want Satan to do that to this person, but I'm not going to mess with their free will, so I guess I'll just stand back and hope he doesn't. There is an endless potential of evil and suffering you could fall into at any moment and God doesn't want it to happen. You could actually go through suffering and pray, God help me, and God's thinking, I'm working on something. I didn't want you to be here. I didn't plan for this, but I'll try to make it work, I promise. Does that actually give you comfort in your times of suffering? That God didn't want you in this place, but you got here anyway? Or is it much more comforting to believe that I am exactly where God wants me and that he has, he has me here in this season of trial for the good of all those who love him. This is for my good. He has meaning and purpose here. You see the way this gives purpose to your sufferings when God is in control of our circumstances? It really is simply more comforting. That's why Charles Spurgeon famously called the sovereignty of God the pillow you rest your head on every night. Do you want to live in a world where God is in control or he's not? Do you want to live in a world where God is in control of some things or all things? Which one helps you sleep at night? You see, I say in an ironic turn of events, the sovereignty of God over all things is extremely comforting. So let your suffering be somewhat relieved by knowing it is no more than God would choose for you. That he is, not, he is not surprised or threatened by any of your circumstances and that he has a purpose for all of your heartache. Satan has no more control over your life than the sovereign loving God of all the universe who deeply cares for you is willing to give him. Let God's sovereignty not be bad news in your suffering. Let it be the greatest comfort imaginable. I'll close with a, a wonderful quote from Spurgeon and then we'll sing. There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend 
than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. It is God upon the throne that we love to preach. And it is God upon the throne in whom we trust. 